unthinkable thing happened. For two and a half hours, Facebook was down. Wired.com sent a message to, to Facebook asking what, was, what happened. And they responded, We're currently experiencing some site issues causing Facebook to be slow or unavailable for some users. What a tragic moment that was. Many people decided to take advantage of that using Twitter to send some live feeds about what their thoughts were. Some people wrote, uh, t- uh, tweeted via Twitter, I hate to be the one to tell you, but all your Farmville animals died and your crops burned. <laughs> Another person wrote, Virtual crops are dying. Fake mafia members are taking over towns. And Justin Bieber fans are actually doing their homework. <laughs> Another person wrote, Breaking news. Facebook is down. Worker productivity rises. U.S. climbs out of recession. <laughs> Zuck isn't turning Facebook back on unless he gets his final edit on the social network, which opened that Friday. Someone else wrote, With Facebook being down... How will we be able to see the people I barely like? Another person wrote, Does that mean we have to actually speak to real people? Two more. Another person wrote, tweeted, 500 million people set to join Twitter just to find out why Facebook isn't working. And the last of all, with Facebook down, you'd think productivity would increase. Nope. Everyone's on Twitter complaining about it. There are many, many, many distractions in our world. Facebook may be number one, at least in our Western society. So many different distractions. We could think about them. You know, we drive down a highway, there are billboards trying to get your attention. Unfortunately, they help you kind of deviate from your focus, which should be on the road. You know, basketball player shoots free throws. There's people with signs behind with brick and trying to shake it to distract the person from doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's making a free throw. And we have so many distractions in our very day-to-day lives, and especially true if we desire to seek and get to know God in any way. Many of us have been distracted from truly pursuing the God of this universe, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Some of us have been distracted in our relationship with Him. Some have been distracted preventing them from beginning a relationship with Him. Many different distractions cloud us. And what happens is, if we have any excitement about serving God, any fire in our stomach, it begins to fade away. And perhaps what was once a great bonfire becomes a faint, a faint fire, a faint spark, a flicker. We need to ask ourselves, today, are you at a place where your heart has become distracted from pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ? Has your heart become, begun to grow dull towards the things of God? Perhaps it's become dull for a dozen different reasons. But the question then is, you need to look, what happened? What brought me to the place where I'm at now? Why is it that I was so excited about Jesus two months ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, and today... It barely excites me. We need to ask ourselves what happened and then to take it a step further, what now needs to happen in light of that? See, these questions aren't foreign to the Bible. In fact, in Ezra chapter 5, people are going to be asking similar questions. And that's what we're going to draw out of the text in Ezra chapter 5. 
Because there's a group of people who were once very zealous for God, and this zeal became a faint flicker. Would you open your Bibles with me to Ezra chapter 5? Last week, Pastor Ralph preached from chapter 4. And if you recall, the week before that, I preached from chapters 2 and 3. And in those chapters, the people of Israel were sent back from Babylon to Israel for the purpose of building a temple for the God that they worshipped. And when they got there, they began to build, and they faced some opposition. And in chapter 3, I think it's verse 3, it says that they had a fear of the people. But what it did, it drove them to worship God. And it drove them not to isolate themselves. So they persevered, they had courage, and they endured. And at the end of chapter 3, they lay a foundation for this temple that they could worship God in. And things were going really well. They were enduring and honoring the Lord. And as Pastor Ralph shared last week, the sudden storm hit. hit. The sudden storm in chapter 4 that threw them all in a different direction. Verse 4 in chapter 4, look at that. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. If you look in verse 24 of chapter 4, it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is terrible news. God rose up a remnant of people, sent them back to Israel to build a temple to worship Him in. They were excited, they got it started, yet they faced opposition. In verse 4 of chapter 4, they were discouraged. And that's the idea that these people weakened their will. They weakened them. They made them afraid. They intimidated them. And they actually bribed counselors against them. These people were willing to invest their own money to discourage the people of Israel. It's like a politician who wastes all this money and adds against the other guy rather than promoting himself. And these people were willing to sacrifice their own money to see God's people discouraged. And you know what? It worked. If you put the dates together throughout the book of Ezra, you find out that for 16 years, they didn't touch that temple. They didn't touch it. For 16 years. What would it take to spark that passion in them again? What did it take to let them sit on it for 16 years? We see in Ezra chapter 5 verse 1, that God sends prophets. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God sent prophets to try to spark something in these people. Now we don't find out here in the book of Ezra, but we're familiar with the names Haggai and Zechariah because there's books of the Bible that they wrote. And if we turn over to the book of Haggai, we find out what took place those 16 years that nothing was happening. And to our surprise, we're going to find out that it wasn't just opposition, that they were discouraged for 16 years, but something far more crippling took place those years. And I want us to turn over there. It's worth looking at. The book of Haggai. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament, probably a few hundred pages over to your right. 
Let's turn there and save a marker in the book of Ezra. We're going to flip between these two books twice today. Go to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 kind of lays out the context for us. Verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So here we see the, the same people. We see this man named Zerubbabel, and we see this man named Joshua, and we see Haggai the prophet in the years of Darius. So this shows us how this is connected with the book of Ezra. Verse 2 says, in chapter 1 of Haggai, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people, and when he says these are not my people, he's mad. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. This is what he says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Jump down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. And this is the reason. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. We see in Ezra chapter 5 and 4 and 5 that the people stopped building the temple because of opposition and adversity. It made them grow weary. It was legitimate. It was real. And one by one, day by day, days turned to months, months to years, people began to drop off the project. And even to the point where Zerubbabel and Joshua ceased building the temple. And during those 16 years, what crippled them was not the opposition, but what does it say? They busied themselves with their own homes. They pursued building their lives instead of building the house of God. They had their own ambitions, their own agendas, the pursuit of comforts, making things nice and cush for them. They wanted to do what they wanted to do to the point where they became blinded and forgot that 16 years prior, God had sent them out of Babylon to build a house. And here Haggai cuts to the quick and rebukes them. and says, you've pursued your own things, your own comforts, and you've neglected the work of God. Now what's the big deal here? I mean, is it that God really wanted a temple? Did God just need a place to stay? Was he left outside? Is he homeless? Did he need a, did he need a roof over his head? Isaiah 66 verse 1 tells us that the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. God was not lacking a home, let alone one made by men on this earth. That's his footstool. The reason God wanted this temple built was because the temple would become a house of prayer. It was a place where worship took place, where people would come set apart to bring Him glory and to honor and sing praises to Him and offer sacrifices to Him. It was about worship. And when they failed to build the house, 
it showed how dull their hearts had become. Not just to the things of God, but to the worship of God. We don't have to look far to apply this to our own lives. We become distracted. And perhaps for some of us, it began with legitimate opposition. Maybe it's in fifth grade right now, and there's a kid in your class who makes fun of you because you believe that God created this world and not an evolution. Maybe they mock you and it's growing on you. It's wearing you down. Maybe it's a cousin who insults you because you've invested in eternity and not in the things of this earth. Maybe it's a spouse or financial advisor who mocks you for giving money to the church, wasting it in their eyes. Perhaps you become tired of the caricatures of Christianity on sitcoms, on the nightly news, on television shows. And all these things have worn on you, and the result has not been greater zeal for the Lord, but you become less of a radical disciple, less of a Jesus freak. And perhaps the opposition has worn you out and dulled you to the point where no longer is it the opposition that's preventing you from pursuing God, but it's simply that things got comfortable. Things became comfortable. Haggai's word to the people comes right to us. How have we distracted ourselves? What type of comforts have we let ourselves become used to at the neglect of doing what God has called us to do? Maybe it is Facebook. Maybe it is Twitter. Maybe it is blogging. Maybe it is going to the gym. Maybe it is shopping. Maybe it's working on your home. Maybe it's working extra hours. Whatever it is that you busy yourself with that diverts your attention from worshiping God, that's the thing Haggai is cut into. And those things become idols in our lives. And it will turn a big bonfire of passion into a flicker in an instant. So what did the people do? In verse 2 it says, Then, in chapter 5 of Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra chapter 5, verse 2 says, Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Josedach arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Their response to God's word through the prophets was radical obedience. They heard God's message, they took it to heart, and they responded in obedience. God speaks to us today still. And it's through His Word. He's written His, He's given us His Word. And He's given preachers, prophets, to speak His Word and to tell and to expound on it, to stir our hearts. And what God wants of us, of you, of me, is obedience. So if you feel your heart's growing dim to the things of God, check how obedient you've been to His Word. Check if you've been in His Word to know what to be obedient to. This is where the people were at, and they responded the right way. But look at verse 3. At the same time, Tanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them, Who gave you the decree to build this house and to finish this structure? No sooner as they begin to rebuild, they get confronted yet again. Things aren't always easy when we walk in obedience to God. We saw in previous chapters that for them it became very violent. And the God in His mercy this time around, this person, Tet and I, was not so 
adversarial. He asked them the question, who gave you permission? And then he asked the question in verse, uh, verse 4, what are the names of the men who are building this temple? He's asking, he wants to know, where's your building permit? Who gave you permission to do this? In verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So picture this. Haggai and Zechariah are telling the Jews to get to back to work and rebuild the temple. They start building, someone starts questioning them right away. Who gave you permission? Who are the people doing this? And instead of having that governor stop them in their tracks, which he could have done, he was the governor of the land, he chose to seek, to find out from the king whether or not they really had received the decree to do this. Even in this small way, you see God's merciful hand on them. Because it would take four to five months for them to send word to Babylon and receive back a message whether or not this was true. So God opened this door and allowed them four or five more months to continue working on the temple. So what took place in this correspondence between the Jews and this governor who's questioning them? He writes a letter to the king, and basically this is what he says in the end of verse 7, To Darius, the king of all, the king, all peace, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. This guy had a concern. If these people didn't get permission... We're in big trouble because they're using huge stones, three stones deep, with wood inside, and they're working very diligently and they're prospering. You get a sense of how these people are working. God has just lit a fire in them through these prophets, and they're they're working, and here this person, this guy is concerned. So he writes to the king, and then he tells the king, I asked them who gave them permission and who are the names of their people. And this is their response in verse 11. This is what the Jews told him. He says, and this was, was their reply to us, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. If you remember chapter 3, they came as one person to the altar. And over 16 years, they became, became fragmented. And now through obedience to God's word, they again were like-minded. And they didn't give them names. They didn't say Zerubbabel, Joshua. They said, no, no. All of us, we're one, and we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we're rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. He's talking, they're talking about Solomon. Verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. They recognized that it was the sin of their fathers that had that place destroyed. But then this great news, verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. So basically, they're kind of restating the things that we found out in previous weeks, but now they're telling another guy, a governor. So this guy now sends a letter to the king, King Darius, and says, can you check the records to find out if this is the truth? And in all of this, we see God's sovereign hand in control of this whole scenario. They continued their work. They're waiting for a response. And in chapter 6, we find out that this King Darius happened to find this decree. I mean, think, in all of Babylon, they find this one message that said it was okay for the Jews to come to Babylon, I mean, to come to Israel and build a temple. Not only that, but they find there that they were given instruction to build this house with these huge stones, with timber. So they're doing precisely what Cyrus had told them. 
And this is what King Darius says in verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, Now therefore, Tatanite governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, and the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Leave them alone. Let them do what they're doing. He gives them permission again to do this work coming from the king. But not only does he give them permission, he gives them a provision. Look at verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed. And he mentions bulls and rams and other things. He gives them permission, and then he gives them provision. Takes care of them. You can build this house, and actually you have all you need to build it. And the third thing he gives them is protection. Look at verse 11. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Yowzers! I mean, tell me about it. Why is this pagan king so concerned about the temple building in Israel? Why does he care? Look at verse 12. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, the most powerful man in the western world at this time, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. What is going on? What is going on? But we see God's control even over a pagan king. Now, verse 10 kind of gives us insight, I think, into why this king was so excited about supporting them. He wants to give them whatever they needed that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and then and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I think this king had ulterior motives. He probably thought, this is a real, king, a real God in Israel. Yeah. Let's have them build a temple and let them pray for me. <laughs> Let's have them pray for me and my heirs to my throne. And maybe it was a selfish desire. Maybe it wasn't. But we know that God uses selfish desires to accomplish his purposes. Would God bless a needy organization by the hand of a millionaire who gives money just to make his reputation known, but in doing so, God would bless that small organization, that ministry? See, God uses pagan kings. He uses pagan decrees. He uses whatever he wants to accomplish his purpose. And no decree comes to this earth no lightning bolt strikes on the ground. No bird falls dead to the ground. No rain fa- drop falls from the sky without God's sovereign will over that. God is in control. And the people of Israel got to see this because they responded in obedience after 16 years of stagnant living. God in His great mercy provided for these Israelites. They were once dull. They once did not care. And we can look to that and say, God, I see that. I see how you love us. I see how your hand's in control in spite of me. And if you see that, let that be a response for you then to be, to respond in worship, in obedience to Him, and His call to walk and honor Him. So this man, Tatanite, goes back to the Jews and he does what 
King Darius told him. Look at verse 13. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, then down, Shethar, Bozani, it says both their names always. There's no way to get around it in reading. It says, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And then this, look what it says. They finished their building by the decree of who? Cyrus? What does it say? Verse 14, they finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. (laughs) I thought it was Cyrus. It wasn't Cyrus, it was God. It was God who was at work through Cyrus and through Darius and later on through Artaxerxes. But it's God's decree, not man's. And they built and prospered. Makes you wonder, what did Haggai tell these people? I mean, he confronted them for their stagnancy, but what did he tell them? Well, again, we have Haggai. Let's turn to Haggai chapter 2. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and to all the remnants, to everyone, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? All the people, old people raised their hand. They remembered the house of Solomon, the temple that Solomon had built before it was destroyed. They raised their hand. And then this question Haggai asks, How do you see this one now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Remember chapter 3? There was a mixed emotion when they saw the foundation laid. Some cried tears of joy. Others cried tears of sorrow because they saw how puny this thing was compared to the previous temple. And Haggai calls them out. Is it nothing in your eyes? And then this word he gives them. These are the kind of messages Haggai gave them as they're building. He says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people, All of you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Not Babylon, Egypt. He's going way back to Moses. God's saying, I'm with you as I was with you then. That's the kind of message Haggai would give them as they're putting bricks upon bricks. He's saying, God's saying, I'm going to be with you. Be strong. Keep pressing on. It took them five years to build the temple. That's blazing speed time. Because men like Haggai and Zechariah lit a fire in them. But perhaps the most glorious thing is verse 9 of Haggai chapter 2. This is what Haggai says. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Huh? Basically what he's saying is, the glory that I'm going to instill in this new temple you've built will far surpass the glory that the old temple had. And this is a remarkable statement because Solomon had built that previous temple. It was beautiful. It had gold trim. It was massive. And yet this smaller temple, Haggai tells him through the, through the Lord, is going to be more glorious. I'm sure they were excited, but they're wondering, God, how are you going to do this? And one of the beauties of having a Bible... Old and New Testament is we can look and see God's hand throughout. 
Because this is the same temple that one, a deliverer, would come to. One by the name of Yeshua, or salvation, because he would save his people from their sins, Matthew tells us. You see, this is the temple that Jesus was circumcised in on the eighth day. This is the temple that Jesus preached in. This is the temple that Jesus would come in and cleanse and say, this is a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves and robbers. But the Messiah, the deliverer of humanity, would step foot into this temple, this little temple, this temple that made people weep with sorrow. And Haggai says, this is far more glorious than anything that came before. Talk about lighting a fire in somebody. And they worked at this and they finished it. The end of chapter 6, we're told, we're told that the people celebrated the dedication of this house of God in verse 16. They offered sacrifices. They celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were excited. God had accomplished His purpose. It took 20 years from start to finish. But God did it because He was in control. When you walked in, you received a rock. And that's why it's written control on it. Because from the eyes of man, this thing was out of control. But from the eyes of God, it was precisely in His control. And this is a beautiful reminder that God is at work. And when His people respond in obedience to His word, we get to see it. And they saw it. And they celebrated. Who were those who worshipped with them? Look at verse 21 of Ezra chapter 6. So we're flipping back to Ezra. Verse 21, Ezra 6 says about the Passover, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. So the Jews were the people who took part of the Passover, but he adds a second category of people, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So who were the people who worshipped God in this temple, celebrated the Passover? It was the Jews, but from what we see there, there's some Gentiles, non-Jewish people. How could they take part in God's community? Well, there's two things it says about them. First, it says they separated themselves from the uncleanliness of the people of the land. The word uncleanliness could be a ritual uncleanliness, like if you touch a, a dead body, you're ritually unclean, you had to go through these different cleansings. But that's not what, it, what Ezra has here. Because in chapter 9, he uses the same word referring to immoral uncleanliness and impurity and immorality. And these people chose to separate themselves from the people of the land and the immorality of the land. They separated themselves from the culture, from the world. They recognized that to be followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, they were holy, set-apart people. So that's the first thing. We see that they were set apart from the uncleanliness, but they're set apart for what purpose, does it say? It says to worship the Lord. You have an NIV or an NASB, it says to seek the Lord, and that's a more literal translation. See, the idea is that they separated themselves from the sinful ways of the world and from doing those immoral things, and they sought the God of Israel and by seeking him they would pray and worship him and that's why it says they sought they uh, separated themselves and to worship the Lord the God of Israel that's the second response we see you know Haggai came 
earlier in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, with Zechariah, preached. The people responded in obedience by building the temple. And here a second response is, they separated themselves from the ways of the world. Now clearly, this is not teaching that we don't engage the world we live in. Jesus himself had meals with prostitutes. He had meals with tax collectors. But what Haggai's getting at is when we are part of the world and look like it. When there is no separation, when we are not set apart, sanctified, holy people, when we're just people who are kind of going with the flow. And Haggai says, if you want to be a worshiper, I mean, sorry, Ezra says, if you want to be a worshiper of God, if you want to get out of a dull spiritual lifestyle, if you want that fire to be rekindled, you walk in obedience, but you separate yourself from sin. You cannot walk in sin and come to the altar of God and worship. You can't. They didn't do it. We can't do that. Because we deceive ourselves. These people weren't perfect, of course. But they came before the Lord. They separated themselves. They pursued Him. And they sought Him. We shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we can please God by walking like the world. If we're in a dull time in our spiritual lives, we need to ask ourselves, am I obeying God's word? Am I getting in God's word? Am I listening to God's word? And am I separating myself from sin? Because that's the kind of worshiper God wants. That's the only worship that's acceptable to Him. They celebrated the Passover with great excitement. And the Passover is so rich with so many images because it draws our attention back to what happened in Egypt. And as Christians, when we think of the Passover, we think of what Jesus did in the, in the upper room with his disciples. And right now, we're going to celebrate the Passover or the Lord's Supper, if you will, as we see it as New Testament Christians. And Nathan Strand's going to come up right now and share that with us. If you're at a place where your heart is dull toward God, if you're 